Scrooge liked the cold. He was hard and sharp as a flint, secret and self-contained, as solitary as an oyster. There goes Mr. Heartless. There goes Mr. Cruel. He never gives. He only takes. He lets his hunger rule. Work is paying off, cause Scrooge is getting worse. Every day, in every way, Scrooge is getting worse. Detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Care Board, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast, where we're science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's getting near that Christmas season. You know, you can smell all the good food in the air. You can see the snow dropping, depending on where in the world you are. And you can always get a little bit of horror in your heart. So let's bring it on. Let's bring on ghosts and spookiness on a more classic level, as opposed to blood and guts. You're still on your other podcast wavelength. We're not just horror here, Bill. I know, but this story <laughs> has allusions to more horror than any other category. Get off my lawn. Come on, back off. <laughs> anyway, yeah, tonight we have a fun Christmas episode. It's our, uh, this will be the first of two. We also have one coming up on about offbeat Christmas movies, and which we actually already recorded. So, uh, But we have some cool guests tonight. I'm going to go ahead and introduce them now. They are from the Real Talk podcast, which is a really awesome and relatively new uh, podcast. And I'm going to bring in Wes and Gabe and Tommy. You guys can fight it out on who wants to go first. What's up, Nathan? What's up, Bill? Thanks for having us. This is Wes, the host of Real Talk, and I'll flip it over to uh, my two co-hosts. I'm just glad to be here uh, tonight with the Tubi Lord himself, Bill Van Bagel, <laughs> hailing from Lord. Canada. Um, you know, it's exciting. You know, he is Tubi's one most highest listener on the planet. So, I mean, they appreciate that. Um, they haven't given me any money, though. Uh, no certificate or anything yet? Not even a, not even a free coupon, you know. Ah, well, that, that's to come. I hope so. <laughs> hey guys yeah you know i've been really on been this is tommy by the way uh part of real talk i've really been on a uh lifelong mission to take down tubi uh you know <laughs> and i have had a, some uh back and forth some disputes some would say about the quality of tubi and the quality of movies on tubi and i'm a vehement anti-tubi person so 
um, one day I will be successful on my mission, I feel like. As long as they keep promoting, you can watch the, uh, what's that TV show on Fox where the singer, the masked singer, Mask as long singer. as they keep promoting the masked singer, Tubi will live. I know, real, real, like I was watching football one night, Bill, and I really thought Tubi was like just like this third-rate operation thing. And then I see on Sunday Night Football like Tubi's being advertised, and I'm like, what is happening? Uh, just another example of the uh, destruction of our culture and society at large. <laughs> well, actually, what happened was Fox invested in it, so it's got lots of money. <laughs> That's true. Wow. All right. I've learned there something. There we go. Bring on to bring, sponsorship because it gets talked about more than any other thing on this podcast, including br- the topics. Bring on oh. the bad, the bad Italian, Spanish, and European cinema. Come on, man! I'm so excited to be on Tubi Talk, a Tubi podcast. Tubi Talk, <laughs> Tubi Galaxy. Is this Tubi Talk? Nobody told me this was Tubi Talk. Is this the name of the show? Oh, Seven man. people just quit listening. They thought they were on the wrong show. <laughs> but it was funny, though, because before the show started, for anybody listening, I was saying that these days, Prime and Tubi, there's not much to choose for between them, really. Other than Prime gets some of the exclusive movies that are, isn't that big a difference, to be honest. Well, they all have, you're talking about the back catalog stuff, because Prime gets some reasonably high quality stuff but then you've got that it's basically going to the video store in 1988 is like the experience of going on Tubi, complete with the red curtain in the back room you know <laughs> the back of the video store anyway oh uh, west do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about real talk and about what you guys are doing over there yeah sure um the guys and i gabe t-man and myself we had been talking about doing a podcast for a couple of years procrastinating, dragging our feet. And one good thing that came out of the pandemic, since everybody was kind of stuck at home, was we were like, well, let's let's get this podcast off the ground. And we did. We started back in May. And I think we're getting ready to uh, release episode 21. That will be up next. And really, for for your listeners, what we want to tell people about our show is just, we just want to have fun, have a good time, it's we want the listeners to feel like you are just hanging out with us some night, just on the couch, talking movies, having a beer, whatever the situation is. And uh, that's the vibe would hope that we give off. And we whenever we started the show, we didn't know exactly like what format we wanted to do. So we decided let's not really set up a format. Let's just kind of do whatever we feel like doing. And so we started off with a few episodes, and then the next thing we know, we had an opportunity to do some interviews. And then we've been able to do more interviews. So we've talked to Adrian Tofay, who did Be My Cat. We've talked to George Hardy from Troll 2. Um, just some pretty cool... We've talked with some the director of a host, of a host, the uh, movie that was big on, uh, on, was it Hulu or Netflix over the summer? It was on Shutter. Um, on Shutter, yeah, sorry, it was yeah. on Shutter. Yeah, it was uh, Jeb Shepard. He was the writer and producer, and was actually on set when they made Host. So, yeah, it's it's just been great. Like we we're having a great time. Love meeting people. Love connecting with people like yourself and Bill. So, just been a lot of fun. So, we'd love you know for anyone who listens to your show to come and check us out. And and yeah, I, I, I was going to say I might answer that. I think the episode that I was on is your highest rated one of all time, isn't it? Yes, yes. I think if it was an IMDb score, it would be like a 10.0. <laughs> I heard it was very big up in Canada. 
<laughs> I hear that they actually put it up on Tubi, you know, even though it's just audio. Uh, well, if that's the case, T-Man's going to quit. Yeah, right, right. Was the T stand for Tubi? Uh, yeah, it's Tubi, Tubi Man. Man. Yeah, Tubi Man. it does now. <laughs> he gets a new nickname just about every show, so I like that one. No, it's a... Nathan, I was going to say, I for, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell the listeners where they could hear us. I mean, we're pretty much on all of your favorite podcast directories. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, you name it. So you can pretty much find us everywhere. And then we're also, we've got a Facebook group, just Real Talk, a movie podcast Facebook group. And then you can find us over at Twitter at Real, R-E-E-L underscore cast. And I will have all that stuff in the show notes as well. I just want to say you were talking about that you're going for kind of a laid back, almost like, you know, hanging out at, you know, on the, on the couch or hanging out at the pub or whatever. And that feel really comes through, I think, in the podcast. It, it, you guys really do have a great show over there. I love uh, listening to it. And that's one of the reasons we're excited to, uh, to bring you guys on tonight. We appreciate that very much. So tonight's episode, we were trying to come up with a Christmas uh, concept episode. And we were talking to draw the curtain back a little bit. We were throwing back an idea that I want to, I still want to go forward with was we were thinking about dinosaurs and dragons at one point when we got together and we're like, what's a good idea. And, and I think that start, I think I threw it out there as a joke, but then I just kind of watched it <laughs> to, to develop. You can't after, do that around me. You don't know me. Dinosaur dragon Christmas is my, is my dream. I know if I showed you the picture of everything that sits above me here in this office, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah. And then Wes, after you posted the video of the dinosaur in your backyard, <laughs> that episode's going to have to happen. So we will have to have you back, but we are not doing dinosaur dragon Christmas tonight, <laughs> sadly. Although I did see while we were looking for offbeat movies, there is a movie called the Christmas dragon on, Oh heck, it's probably on Tubi, but I think I saw it on <laughs> Netflix or something, and it looked pretty. Uh, it looked pretty bottom of the barrel. But tonight we're going to talk about arguably, probably, well, you know, arguably the most influential Christmas story in general, which is a Christmas Carol, uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And what we decided to do was just let everyone uh, tonight pick their own version of the Christmas Carol film version. We'll talk a little bit about the story. We also left it open kind of loosely uh, so that we could have latitude that, you know, in, in one case we have one of the movies that is also very well known that isn't a direct adaptation, but I think it's inspired enough by a Christmas Carol because I think you could, you could make the case that almost not just many films and books in, in the genre of fantasy and, horror and i'd say even science fiction have been inspired by a christmas carol and all these other genres as well i think the holiday itself uh when dickens wrote this in the 1840s you know there was kind of a sense where the victorians was trying to kind of reclaim what christmas was and you had the old traditions like the carols and the christmas tree was relatively new in that time frame i think a lot of the things we associate with christmas for, you know, even here in America that we think of as forming our concept of Christmas uh, cheer and Christmas traditions, some of that comes probably from what Dickens was putting forth in A Christmas Carol. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, that as a story, but then we're going to jump into uh, five different versions of A Christmas Carol and just kind of have a chance to talk about the story, about its influences, and also about how it's been adapted and the strength, I think, of the the movies that we've chosen so 
what I'm going to do is just kind of lay, I mean, I think everybody probably has a, as an, as a working understanding because it has entered pop culture in general, uh, what a Christmas story is, but I, I just wanted to kind of throw it out there. My perspective on its influence, when you look at it as, uh, because we, we do talk about horror, science fiction and fantasy. And when I throw that out there, I kind of just chose that so that it would allow this podcast to have a wide sweep to catch, you know, movies that are horror and movies that are science fiction, movies are fantasy. But a lot of times, you know, when we invite people on the show, we're like, well, pick a movie. And they're like, well, I can't find one that's all three. I was like, well, it's not that specific. <laughs> but I think in some ways, A Christmas Carol almost in certain ways could be categorized with with all three of those monikers, you know. It definitely is a ghost story, I think, first and foremost. When it was published originally, it was called A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. And, of course, ghost stories are a very British tradition, and they didn't always have to take place at Christmas. But they involved involved ghost stories. And the other aspect of it is it does involve – it has those fantastical elements that go with Christmas. You know, that when Charles Dickens is writing this, he's got a holiday that is based around uh, – I'm not going to say magic, but it's based around the element, uh, like a, a super, supernatural elements of the virgin birth and things like that. And so there is a spiritual, I guess spiritual is the best word for it, spiritual element already to the story. And then he builds these ghosts in. And in a sense, I wouldn't say it's science fiction because of, of the means of travel, but there is an element almost of time travel that takes place within the concept of what happened to the Scrooge, the, the the miser at the center of the story. So you have Ebenezer Scrooge, who was a very iconic character. I probably was first introduced to him as Uncle Scrooge from, from Disney. I don't know how about you guys the first time you saw him, but that was probably the first time I saw him. And the story does involve this miser who encounters initially the ghost of his dead business partner who shows up in chains points out that his life has essentially been wasted, even though he was always in the pursuit of money and the pursuit of finances. And he mentions that mankind should have been his business, that essentially he should have been more aware of what was going on in the world and aware of those who were truly in need. And he's telling Scrooge that you're on the same path. And then Scrooge is visited by these three ghosts that are up front. Marley lets him know that this is part of a potential redemption. This is kind of the last ditch effort to help you regain essentially, I mean, my reading is regain your soul, regain your life and your purpose in the world. And he meets these three ghosts. There's a ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of, uh, we think of as Christmas future or the ghost of Christmas yet to come, I think is the way it's actually written in the book. And he meets each of these and he interacts with, he, he basically gets to see it's not so much about him traveling to the past or being in the present or going to the future to see some new event. It's more the way my reading on it is it's about perspective, that it's really about uh, Scrooge's opportunity to get perspective, uh, learning more about who he is from his own, how he sees himself. When he goes into the past, he gets to see himself beyond the sort of brittle, very reserved and, uh, uh, tight man that he's become and he gets to see that perspective the present is more about how this man is seen by his peers by the people around him by his family by the people that would try to be his friends and then the future is sort of what how how society at large is going to remember him and see him and so it's just kind of three perspectives and you have all these other characters that come in you have bob cratchit who is clerk tiny tim who is bob cratchit's sick son and there's all these other peripheral characters but of course it is centered around scrooge and I when I finally saw a real like 
a live action film version, that's when I really realized, oh, this is kind of scary <laughs> or it can be scary. And that was my first interaction with it. Um, Wes, how about you? Your first interactions with the with the Christmas Carol or your general thoughts on it? I was trying to think when is the first time that I was exposed to the story and I, I couldn't really pinpoint it because I think these are just, this is one of those stories that I think just about everyone grows up with and you know it at a very young age. And I believe, didn't they do a version with maybe Mickey Mouse? Yes, Mickey's Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that is the one that I feel like is probably the old, the version that I would have seen first. And just my initial thoughts on the story itself, not even about Mickey Mouse, <laughs> but just on A Christmas Carol is I feel like it is one of the best stories that has ever been written throughout history, whether a book, a screenplay, a play, whatever the situation may be. It is just it is a timeless tale. And it's so easy, I think, because of the human condition or human nature for us to fall into this um, material, material wealth the it's all about me you know we are creatures who for the most part care about ourselves at first more than others um and this story is just supposed to call attention to 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 lead a fulfilling life it's not about the stuff that you have or the stuff that you accomplish necessarily it's about how much you're you're helping you know your fellow man and especially for those, I feel like, especially for those that have the means to do so. And this story is just a great reminder of it. So I've been reading a little of the story, catching up on these movies that I haven't seen in a while. And I think the, the point that Dickens, Dickens was trying to make with it is, is I have been in such a more giving spirit lately simply from revisiting the story. Yeah, that's that's an awesome point. That and, and you're right. Like as you see the stories, you think about. We watched. I went over one more version. Um, I rewatched the George C. Scott one one more time this afternoon. When we were done, my son is like, uh, "Can I can I ask for something for Christmas? I would like to have some money so I can give it to charity." So even <laughs> oh, that's even awesome. Small like that, yeah. And I and I think you're right. The story is so classically told, but it does have an actual through line, and I think that's why some of the versions we've picked are. Or, or better than some of the others because they do cling to his original story, which had a little bit of, I don't know how you feel reading it, Wes, but there's a little bit of anger behind it. You know, at the time frame, you can tell this is a guy that that visited probably some of those workshops that are mentioned in the movie or some of these houses that uh, where where the poor are kept, that we, we have a lot of fluffy associations with it, but there is a little bit of social anger running underneath of that story, I think. Yes, I think he. I think he visited uh, Field Lane uh, Ragged School for London Street Children. Yep, and uh, that was one of the places he visited that I think compelled him or propelled him to write the story. But then also, he said he had some experiences in his youth as well. You know, growing up in London and seeing, you know, just some of the areas of London were just in really bad shape and he didn't see that people that should be helping or could be helping were and that just made a lasting impression on me 
uh, on him. And I think that's uh, I think that's really where the the origin of the story came. But he was just such an excellent writer and excellent storyteller. It's just kind of the perfect combination or the perfect concoction to get this this type of story. And Gabe, how about your thoughts on Christmas Carol in in a general sense? Well, you know, when Wes was just sitting there talking, he was, you said, what was your first experience with Christmas Carol? And um, I picked them up at Christmas Carol and kind of ironically, because that was my first experience with Christmas Carol. It came out in 1992. I was born in 84, so I was about six. Uh, right at about the time my son just watched it. My son is six. He just <laughs> He's the one who just watched it with me twice. Hey, Gabe, uh, I hate to interrupt you, but that'd be eight. So we'll, we'll get you back in math soon. <laughs> I was eight, so I was older, and uh, I can't read or write either. It was a good story, though, Wes. Why did you have to mess it up with math? <laughs> but this is what we do on Real math. Talk. We, we, this, is, this is what we do. So and there, 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 will okay. be, there will be no editing. This will go straight no, to air. Please no, leave that in. Please don't. And here's the thing. I'm going to screw up here later, and then Gabe's going to get me back. So it's just a matter of time. <laughs> We're going to change this to math talk, a math podcast. Let me get you guys into some like uh, different some equations. Let's talk some Pythagorean theorem. No, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do math. So anyway, I was eight. He was six. You know, you know, which was not as cool for the story. So, Wes, you really screwed that up. But anyway, so he just watched it for the first time. And he, you know, he got the same feel. Like the whole beginning of the movie, he was like, oh, man, this is getting kind of dark. And it's a Muppet movie. But that towards the end, he was like, you, you know, even though it scared him a bit, he was like, you know, that's really the Christmas spirit. And let's take, a, let's take another step back. You know, what Wes described is the Christmas spirit. And what it encourages you to do is if you're not living like that, you should be every, you should be every day. And that's what the movie's about. And I think it's a great message. Yeah, agreed. And I like the thing I think that sets this apart from a lot of quote unquote Christmas movies is there's not a general feeling about what is Christmas. What's the true, uh, feeling beneath it you know what is it supposed to inspire and engender and isn't this fuzziness or a feeling of thankfulness i mean all those maybe aspects of it but dickens is pretty clear about what he views when you know when he says that it, it could be said that scrooge kept christmas in his heart you know what does that mean i think the movie's pretty clear you know the entire movie is about telling you what that means you know to keep christmas in your heart and tommy how about you I think the Christmas Carol, the thing about it that kind of always I think about when I'm watching it is, you know, Charles Dickens is, you know, he was considered a social critic back in the 1800s. That was really what he was known for. And he really, you know, through his novels, through his novellas, he really kind of touched on poverty. And I think, Wes, you, you touched on that a little bit. But, you know, thinking back, poverty was such a bigger thing. And it was, you know, extreme poverty. And A Christmas Carol really reinforces that and really touches on that a whole lot. If you think about the famous line where he talks about uh, what does Scrooge say in the beginning, decreasing the surplus population, that's an extremely famous line. And it shows that Scrooge is this miserable character. 
and he has no sympathy for the underclass and through the poverty class. Charles Dickens had that type of sympathy for it. That's why he wrote his books, whether it's Oliver Twist or Great Expectations, a lot of it had to do with people in poverty. And while A Christmas Carol is a Christmas set story and has a lot of themes to it, uh, that theme of poverty is also a, a, an extremely important one. I don't think it's talked about a whole lot. I mean, Bob Cratchit's family is basically the working poor, if you think about it. You know, they're working full time and they have a job, but they're still extremely poor. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of A Christmas Carol that isn't really touched on a whole lot. Yeah, I agree. And it sort of characterizes the movie, the story. You know, it is central to it because you can't, you know, Scrooge's situation, everything about him and his journey in all three timelines, when he looks at the past, the present, and the future, it all it is all based around that. And I and I feel like watching these four different or five different versions, they when you watch them, you really realize that, and the reason I think these are the better versions is they don't focus on just taking the ghosts and taking the the sentiment about oh, happy Christmas. They do focus on that idea of what does it mean to be uh, sort of shirking any kind of responsibility you have to your fellow man. And what what is your responsibility? What does that mean, Bill? What do you what are your thoughts? Basic thoughts about the Christmas Carol. About a Christmas Carol, my first. Uh touching of the story was probably like Wes was probably with the uh, Walt Disney or the Mickey Mouse. Uh, but I didn't, I had never seen the Muppet Christmas Carol up until two weeks ago. Cause at that point I was 18 years old. I wasn't worrying about the Muppets. Um, but my first reel was probably 1951's version with Alistair Sims. Cause that would come on TV all the time. It still does. The only problem I ever had with it is usually the version that was on TV was a, probably a poor, copy of the original so the film quality wasn't the best but the story and the eeriness and the acting and the mood that was set was stuff that it still sticks to me when when you guys said you want to do a christmas carol that was the version i thought of right away and so i it might be the original the oldie goldie some people may call it old-fashioned or what have you but I think that's the one that sticks. I think that's the spookiest of them all. And it's ironic that none of us are actually doing that version today. But it, I agree with you guys. It's a, a social commentary as much as it is a movie. I mean, there's things to be said about the adoption system and the treatment of those without parents. You can talk about the treatment of the handicapped. Uh, or was it a treatment of... The, or an indictment of the medical slash hospital system at the time that certain people were left by the wayside and those with the money got it. I mean, there's talk of empathy and the role of government in general and how people who are treated, who are raising money for funds for people that need it bad. I mean, you can have a whole university course based on this kind of a thematic um, uh, style and thematic uh, themes of what happened in society. And I think this movie plays that out in a level, like it's like watching Animal Farm. Yeah, it's about pigs and what have you, but <laughs> it's also about something else. And I think this story, like when you see it as a kid, it's a cool little ghost story and you kind of get part of it, but you don't get it till you're 17, 18, 19 and you've lived a little bit. So I think this is a multi-level film. And that Alistair Sims version you're talking about, Bill, that's the first one that came to mind, too. It is one of my, it's probably my, ultimately my, I don't know, the, the George C. Scott one is so good. It's ultimately maybe my favorite because I think 
all of the production elements and everything are so good on it. The one with Alistair Sims and, and it wasn't even the first one. I mean, there were, there were versions in the thirties and there's ones with Lionel Barrymore, but it is, I think to me, it's like the most iconic and outside of the animated, it's probably the other one that I saw earliest and it is spooky. It's very effective. I, and there's a very good like Blu-ray of it out there now. So I would recommend anyone who hasn't seen that one. Uh, one of the reasons I was trying to pick one that maybe was a little more off the beaten path when I picked mine. And, but I do think that 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 version, which is called Scrooge, is one of the very best. It, but what what I think about when I think of Christmas Carol, and this is weird, is we went on a field trip in fifth grade to see the Christmas Carol, like in in Louisville, and that was like a big deal at like some theater. And you know, also what it makes me think of is you know it just naturally associates Christmas with it, unlike another movie I talked about recently, Die Hard. But um, you know. When I think about it, that is what I think about is Christmas, that time of year, going to that play, that time of year, I think of events. And and so it's a theatrical piece. It's a it's a movie. It's a book. I mean, it's you know, it's all levels of uh, Hollywood during this time. Yeah. And I, I think even in our traditions, I don't think that the way we celebrate, I mean, not, maybe not personally but in the general sense that we have of christmas would be very different without charles dickens a christmas carol i mean i do think when you really stop and think about it, i think no. it has permeated it like the, to that degree you know and it hasn't just affected the fiction and stuff but it's affected the traditions and things like that well nathan to that point i mean think about its legacy <clears throat> and i've written down just a couple of things you know merry christmas the phrase was first used in a letter in 1534, but the phrase was, wasn't was popularized amongst the Victorian public until this book. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And then, of course, when they started using it, and it's just kind of spread, and now people say Merry Christmas all the time. I got lunch at Wendy's today, and, you know, the lady told me Merry Christmas. And, you know, I was thinking about tonight. I was like, yeah, Merry Christmas. Did you say bomb bug? Tonight. Yeah, I should have. Yeah, that's that's was going to be my next point was Bah Humbug. But I was just sitting there thinking as I drove off, I was like, thanks, Charles Dickens. <laughs> uh, but then, you, you know, the the term Scrooge, you know, people use that a lot as well as Bah Humbug. Um, it, it helped to reinforce the spirit of Christmas during the time of its release as well. And then I think the largest impact is usually felt by the people that read the story and or watch the movies because right after the book came out in that area of, of England, there was a rise in charitable giving. People started hosting dinners for the poor and then employers started to kind of increase employee benefits. And of course, all of those types of things have trickled down, you know, since that time, but that's pretty, that's pretty crazy that this one story written, you know, 200 plus years ago is responsible for all of these things. A story that was billed essentially as a pulpy ghost story originally, right? You know, like mm-hmm. that's yeah. awesome to think of, of a of a piece of fiction having that kind of legacy because I think we sometimes scoff at the idea that a book can change the world or things like that. And um, I don't want to get too lofty with all that. I'd want to throw out there too before we uh, begin – with the the movies we picked, there is a movie. I didn't choose it because it's not necessarily a direct adaptation. And I don't know if you guys have seen it. It is on Hulu now. It's called The Man Who Invented Christmas. Has anyone seen it? 
I have not. It was released a couple years ago. It has Dan Stevens plays Charles Dickens, and it's Charles Dickens in the creative process of writing A Christmas Carol. And so it brings in a lot of these things we've been talking about, his visits to these places where he saw the conditions that people were in, his interactions with his father, who's played by Jonathan Price, and Christopher Plummer plays the Scrooge that sort of comes out of his mind. You see all these characters. They talk. Uh, Dan Stevens as as Dickens is talking to all these characters, trying to get a feel for who they are. And so he's a lot of the movie is him standing in a room, talking to all the various characters of a Christmas Carol as they try to explain to him how, who they would be and how they would interact. It's quite good. I think it's on Hulu right now, but um, it's, you know, it's not an amazing movie, but it's a pretty solid movie. And it is also of the PG variety. I mean, any version of Scrooge or the Christmas Carol that you could watch with a family, you could watch this one with a family as well. Nathan, I just wanted to point out, I lobbed up a softball to Gabe by saying the book was published 200 years ago, which wasn't even close to that, and he didn't pounce on it. It isn't so. much fun when you when you uh, censor yourself, you know. <laughs> I, I see what you did there, Wes. I get the joke. That's all I have to say. Oh. So if you want to get all of the references here, I think you have to listen to all of our podcasts. But uh, it's, very, it's very intertextual. Uh, anyway, Tommy, uh, how about we're, we'll, I'll go, turn it over to you. You had picked uh, your version, I think, is a good one to start with because as we move through these, we kind of start to move from ones that are very close to ones that uh, have taken some, some liberties as they adapt the story. And I think this, yours... Uh, is probably of the ones that we've chosen is the one that sticks closest to what was in Dickens' story right off the bat. So do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about your the version you picked? All right, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, Wes, one thing I wanted to say, I know you mentioned earlier about going to Wendy's. Uh, great choice for lunch, uh, <laughs> but also they said Merry Christmas. I'm gonna have, we're going to have to report that. Uh, I think that's not in vogue anymore. <laughs> I think it's Happy Holidays now. So... Just tell me where that Wendy's is at, and I'm going to contact the corporate headquarters. Um, so anyway, uh, real quick, continue on. So yeah, my pick was A Christmas Carol from 1984, and this is actually a British-American made-for-television film adaptation. And it's an extremely close uh, depiction of A Christmas Carol. And so the one thing about it, because this was always my uh, parents' favorite version, and so I actually grew up watching this version, uh, but for the longest time, I didn't realize it was a TV movie uh, until recently, because it feels like a real film adaptation. Adaptation, And re-watching it again, it really, you know, to me, I think it captures the spirit of the book, probably the closest Um and the most accurate version of the book. Now I haven't read the book. I've read excerpts from it, but it feels like that it captures the book's essence really well. It follows the plot extremely, you know, close. And I don't think we really have to go into it too much. Uh, Nathan, you covered that already, right? Do you want us to go into it? No, not really. Only in places where you feel as it's relevant in expressing what you're trying to say about this one. Yeah, I don't think, like I said, everybody kind of knows the plot. That's why I don't really want to go through it too much. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge, played by George C. Scott. He's got his uh, right-hand man, uh, Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit's got a son, Tiny Tim. I got a thing about Tiny Tim I'm going to talk about later. Not a fan of Tiny Tim, by the way. (laughs) 
in life. general or this say that for life? <laughs> I'm concerned. No. In general, hey, Tommy, in general, Tommy, 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 we've talked about this. When we go on other podcasts, we've just lost all of our Tubi like fans. <laughs> we've just lost all the all the people that work at Tubi that listen to this podcast. And now you're going to lose the the Bob Cratchits or Tiny Tim fans. Oh man, that is true. I realize I've come on here and just made three jokes, like basically dissing. I've dissed Tubi. I've just Merry Christmas, and now I just dissed. Uh, and you, you, I was going to say, you need to be careful as you tiptoe through the tulips. <laughs> yeah. Man, you got to before me. I'm, I'm, well, everybody needs a bad guy. Everybody needs an Ebenezer Scrooge. So that's my part to play tonight. So that's what I'm doing here, guys. I'm giving you guys ammunition to come out. Except this is part um, of a reveal that I completely agree with you about Tiny Tim. <laughs> yeah. I knew you did. I knew. I think everybody harbors that. I mean, this character is a cliche to the nth degree. First of all, what type of illness does he even have? Like, what is he? He's like, he's got one, like, crunch? Like, can they not even get two? Anyway, like, seriously, what is wrong with this guy? Like, how? Like, he's like eight years old, and he's already got a uh, crunch? Like who has a crush at eight years version, old? It was even too much for my daughter. She was watching. She's six, and she looks and goes, "He's he's really sick in this one." He's like the London Mist, and he's like his face looks like the Penguin from yeah. Batman Returns. <laughs> right? Yes, I think Danny DeVito got his stuff from from him. But like, seriously, I think in this one too, like they really do overdo it with like the yeah. eyeshadow, and then they just like. <laughs> blob it on it's like man is this guy already dead and if you're not dead already die already uh get rid of this subplot oh, he uh, probably had like leg cancer and was about to die this is horrible but i'm laughing i'm crying no, i can't help it it's not horrible because here's the thing i think everybody deep down inside first of all i love a christmas carol i love it it's an amazing story probably like wes i think you said one of the great stories ever made but I think everybody deeps down inside, if they they may not admit it out in public, but inside, that Tiny Tim subplot is worthless. Like, they know that as soon as Tiny Tim's on screen, they can go and do a bathroom break. They don't want to sit down and hear about Tiny Tim again. So, that's my two cents. I don't even know where I'm talking about. Am I even talking about the movie anymore? I don't even know. Uh, you've, got, you've zigged when you should have zagged. But I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm expecting an email from Anthony Walters. I think it depends on how the virgin handles him. But yeah, I, I see your point here, particularly. There's a lot of scenes of him just, and it's like he like just waits around to say, God bless us, everyone. And you're like, such a poser. Yes, it's like, yeah, such a poser, such a suck up. You know what he's really trying to do? He's trying to get Ebenezer's money. Like, he is really trying to get that money because he's really putting it on him when Ebenezer's around. He knows who he's around. He's really, anyway. Uh, I could go on a long longer about Tiny Tim. I'll control myself. That was my edited version, by the way. I have an unedited <laughs> version about Tiny Tim. I'll send it to you later. Oh, no. uh, uh, oh man. That was amazing. So that's not, that's, that's the not podcast. Your, so that's not your return of the game. It's like unedited versions of the podcast. If so, that will be our Tiny Tim special. Anyway, back to the movie. I won't keep this too long because so we're already going quite a long time on this one. But... This one is everybody knows the plot. You got Ebenezer Scrooge. You got the three ghosts coming. You got Marley coming. 
He has to redeem himself by the morning. He does that. But the reason I like this one so much, first, it's got the great Victorian setting. And I just feel like like it's got that atmospheric, gothic feeling. They actually filmed this in, in England in a, a tiny village, which actually uh, works really well. And then George C. Scott is just awesome as Ebenezer Scrooge. I think he's the best version of him. Of course, a great, fantastic actor. Um, and he's just a bastard in this movie. And that's what you need out of Scrooge. You need a guy that you think like you're kind of afraid of him and you kind of hate him at the same time. And this, and he's that perfect version. But by the end, he redeems himself and somehow you end up liking him. So, like I said, the only downside to this version, I think, is that it is a uh, made for TV film. So it has that, you know, it has the square box. I think you even texted me about that. Um, but overall, it's a fantastic version, probably the best of the like true adaptations for it. So I'm just going to kick it to you all. I know that that uh, synopsis was all over the place. I love it. But what do you all think about anything? <laughs> no, I agree. I, I mean, I actually saw this version for the first time in preparation for this podcast. I knew that it was out there. I like George C. Scott, had not seen it. And uh, I did not quite develop the hate that you have for Tiny Tim watching it. I, it really didn't stand out to me at all. But uh, maybe on a future revisit, I will start to seethe with anger. Wes, it's not just this version. It's all the versions. <laughs> like, you know, it's just his character in general. Um, anyway, we don't want to go down that hole again. I got a lot of anger built up right now. <laughs> but, but to your point, that I honestly, aside from that it was in full screen. Now, I don't know if that was the way it was. Uh, that was the way it was shot. Yeah. It, like every version is full screen or T-Man was just being cheap at Barnes and Noble when he picked this up as a Christmas gift. <laughs> but <Well>. um, <laughs> I actually really, really liked this version. And uh, it was inc- very well acted. And it just, it felt like a movie. It felt like a theatrical release with, you know, all of the different people who were in it. Uh, we joked that the scientists from, uh, from Ninja Turtles two, David Warner. Yeah. Were, yes, he was in it. And, uh, there was another, there was, an, Oh, um, Alfred from Batman yeah. and the, he's in sleepy hollow as well. He was in it. It's like the who's who amongst old British. Yeah, Edward students. Woodward was, uh, yeah. the ghost of Christmas, uh, present. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was really enjoyable. I'm glad you picked this version. And audience, if you haven't seen this version ever, or you haven't seen it in a long time, I highly recommend watching it before Christmas. Now, it might put a little bit of a dent in your wallet because, again, you just feel like you want to give after the movie's over, except apparently to crippled children. <laughs> Not the crippled children. Uh, everybody else is good, though. But to your point, Wes, I think that you make a great point about all the great actors in it. Um, and it's just like a collection of like all the BBC stars from like 1980, the early 80s. It's in there. So, yeah, great point about that. Yeah, I, I was, was going to say, it's funny when you were talking about the atmosphere in the Victorian. I actually wrote down good atmosphere, a hammer type feel. Because you kind of get a yeah. hammer type mm. feel with the way the set is and the way it's shot, very British wide shot of a lot of things. But I, to pick up on the quality of the cast, like if you go through the cast, Angela Pleasance, Donald's daughter, is 
really strong. She's always had a certain kind of presence in any movie role she did. I remember her in 1974's Symptoms, a very different type of film, but she's always kind of like that dour, doughty, you know, kind of role. And she plays that really, really well. I thought Edward Woodward was brilliant as the ghost of Christmas present him, you know, in the, in the, in the robe with a bare chest and telling George C. Scott where his life is going. And David Warner is good in just about everything he does. I love the man as an actor. He's fantastic. He's been in so many great seventies and eighties horror films and uh, films of lesser known on this side of the pond. And Roger Rees, Roger Rees, a veteran uh, actor who, when you hear the name, you don't know who Roger Rees is, but when you look at him, you go, I know that guy from somewhere. Nigel Davenport as Silas Scrooge, the brother. Uh, he was in the island of Dr. Moreau in 77. He was in phase four in 1974. Like you can go on and on about the cast. So well acted. But I thought of all the versions we saw is the truest to the book. And it went into the most thorough detail of what it was probably like to be in that time period. I don't know about you guys. But when I think of Christmas Carol, I think the Mickey Christmas Carol. I think the Muppet Christmas Carol. But then as an adult, I think this Christmas Carol, because this is, I, I think I saw it the most times as an adult. And I think I saw it on TV because it was on TV. I don't remember when that aired. I don't know if you guys do. Um, it was, Gabe, it was released in 1984, but I read up on it. And AMC got back the rights in the 2000s. And so that's probably where you saw it on because they started showing. But it I think on it AMC definitely did play in the 80s, like here or there. It might have probably on PBS or something, maybe, you know, they would play some yeah. British stuff. Yeah, probably throughout. Yeah. But that's the version I think of as an adult because that's the one I saw the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing to talk about with the movie is I think they did a great job with the Ghost of the Future. Cause it looks so creepy yeah. and it's got like those long hands. Like it's just so well made and it's got that Gothic sensibility, which ultimately I think that's what, what makes a Christmas Carol so unique of a story is that, you know, it's ultimately a story of redemption. It's a story about poverty. Like we've talked about about Christmas, but it's also kind of a horror movie in a way. Like we've talked yeah. about it has all, it crosses it's based all those is a, and, is a old fashioned ghost story. Yeah, exactly. And the best versions of this, I think, has to have those ghosts that are kind of creepy. Like, you know, they're not going to like hurt you, but you've got to have that creepiness factor. And I think this one does. Now, am I going to say, am I the only one that found it creepy that Edward Woodward had children beneath his robe? That's a creepy part. And sometimes it gets excised from a lot of adaptations. No, I thought that was just normal. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll be like, sure. But <laughs> thinking back now that I think about it, yes, you are. No, that's that 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 plot point's always a little creepy. Tommy, you lived a really scary childhood. <laughs> I, you didn't like. I'm quite frightened of you, honestly, being on this show still. Like, I know you I'm don't. Really, you don't know I, about the tradition of bringing <laughs> Christmas waifs with you wherever you go. <laughs> yeah, that's normal. Gay. My feral children. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's hard because it's it, it's that very allegorical point. But in a mo- in a movie or a story that has all of these like very it, the the film versions, of course, have to be concrete and they have these very there ghosts and mm-hmm. suddenly there's creepy little you know that was a weird point for my uh, kids watching it. They're like, wait, where are those kids come from? Because you know it, it, all these other characters represent <laughs> things, happening? but they're literally called the ignorance and you want you know, and so 
Like they had bad yeah. parents. Why'd they name them that? But uh, the the thing I love about this, I mean, there's lots of things. It's like you said, it doesn't look like a TV movie particularly. It looks uh, very well done. There are TV movies done later. Uh, there was one that like Hallmark helped produce that has Patrick Stewart in it. And Patrick Stewart's great, but the thing looks very, very dated. And I don't think that this movie looks particularly dated, you know, other than what it's other than the period piece look that it's going for. It does, like you said, Bill, have those misty sort of London foggy streets. And even the first scene where we're getting the prelude to Marley, where we watch Scrooge walking home, that's done very creepy, very much a horror movie. You see that carriage coming behind him, slowly making its way up behind him. And the way the ghost of Christmas uh, yet to come future is done in this is the closest I think to the book because over time that creepy image of him in the you know in the shroud it's really what it seems to be it's a death shroud you can't see his face all you see ever is one hand that kind of points forlornly at things but over time that kind of developed into almost a grim reaper sort of presence right in the movie a lot of the movies straight up and one of the ones we're going to talk about you know he's, he almost is like the grim reaper the jim carrey version he's very much like a grim reaper type but you get the impression in the way it's written in the book that he doesn't ever speak it comes to him he keeps demanding to kind of know who the spirit is doesn't ever tell him anything scrooge sees his own body but the thing that scrooge doesn't see uh, is what becomes of his soul and what becomes of his future. And I think that's really what the ghost of Christmas, I get this feeling, particularly in this version, that that's what the ghost of Christmas future is. It's shrouded. It's dark. You can't see what it is. It isn't speaking. It almost is Scrooge's future as a person or his soul. You know, it's up in the air what's going to happen to it. You wonder that if he had already changed, would that ghost look different than it does right now? And that was always kind of strange. And the thing about George C. Scott is he... The two things I always think you have to have for a Scrooge is he has to be able to sell the bitter, bah humbug Scrooge, but you have to, and this is what hampered the Jim Carrey one for me because of that motion capture, didn't quite capture it. You have to have the moment of joy at his, 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 his own redemption. You know, he, George C. Scott's almost a little scary when he gets redeemed. He's like jumping on the bed and he's just in full blood. You know, he seems drunk. He says that, you know, and he's jumping around. And I love the blustery attitude as he comes into contact with the ghost. You know, he's trying to snuff the ghost of Christmas uh, present out with her own like candle snuffer. And uh, which is the same kind of attitude he had when he was in the Exorcist three. And when he was in the changeling, you know, he's not going to really bother with spirits. He's just going to scream at them like an old man telling kids to get off his yard. So <laughs> I always appreciate that about putting George. He's got him with supernatural elements. The other thing though, is you can, he lets you see right off the bat that he does have some insecurities. He does. He is a person. The thing about the Scrooge, I think in the novels in here is this isn't a guy who's completely irredeemably evil. But he's a guy who's cut himself off to see the hurt in the world. He's made himself numb. Because as soon as you start putting him in, I guess the benefit of having Tiny Tim is he sees a person who's really hurt, who's connected to people he knows, that, oh, I, I do care when I see it. And isn't that so many people in the world? Like, I don't care. I don't want to get to know or I don't want anything to do with this kind of a person until there's one of those people near me. You know, I, I don't really care about these people who have poverty. But if I know a person who's impoverished, my heart may go out to them. And that's kind of, you know, you have to have a Scrooge that you can see that he has the possibility for redemption. You know, there's a reason that ghosts are going to take a chance on him. And I think, I think uh, he sells that in this movie. 
Nathan, you made a, a lot of great points in there, and I was following along with you really well. And you started, again, by talking about just the quality of this movie from the 80s. And again, it was a made-for-TV movie. And this is the type of quality that you got back in the 1980s with those made-for-TV movies. You know, you got Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. You've got A Christmas Carol. And then fast forward to 2020, and we've got Mario Lopez, (laughs) a.k.a. uh, A.C. Slater, playing Colonel Sanders in a Lifetime movie about, like, a a thriller. (laughs) So... This is how far we've fallen. I think we've gone a good direction. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I don't know if I've gone. Well, so far. We're going up, guys. So far, anything, we've talked about up. Wendy's and KFC. What else? What's next? Hey. Yes. I, well, and the last thing I'll say to that point about the 80s, uh, the 80s movies, right around this time, I might have even been 84. George C. Scott did another production. It was uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Murders in the Room Morgue. Also a TV movie, and it, he was in it. Val Kilmer was in it, and so was uh, Rebecca De Mornay, and it's actually pretty good. So that's one to anyone who's uh, listening that to put on your list. It, it is about the same quality. I don't know. I didn't. I probably should have looked it up. It may have even been produced by the same people. I don't know. But um, does anyone have anything else to say about that particular version? Nope. I think we've pretty much gone as much as we can because we've been fairly thorough and I think we all can agree that we all enjoyed it very much and thought it was well done. So let's go now to the Muppets Christmas Carol. And Gabe, this was your your pick. And you mentioned a little earlier this was kind of the first one that you had seen or, or most of you know that you've kind of made you aware of the Christmas uh, story, Christmas Carol. Yeah, so this one holds a special place in my heart because uh, it was one that most made me most aware, and I just watched it with my son, and we won't go over the ages again, but um, <laughs> it is a, um, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, it's directed by Brian Henson. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but if you like Wikipedia, the, the Muppets movie, they don't name the, the people that play the puppets. They name the puppets as the cast car- characters. Like Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, the Great Gonzo, Rizzo the Great. They just name them all in the starring roles. So those puppeteers just don't get any action. What are you talking about? I'm looking at it right now on Wikipedia. The puppeteers? These characters are real. Who? What you, <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> Kermit and Gonzo? The, what do you mean? I, I did not. We, no, Wes, are we going to do this bit? Are we going <laughs> to go down this path about puppeteers <laughs> real or not? I actually stole it from you, so. so I know. This is I know you did. Well, anyway, after that, Wes, how many? Or what's the next bit you got planned for me on this random show? Santa? I'm just. I'm looking. I'm looking back through. You know, ones that we've done, and I'm like, I, I'm just taking yours. Uh, that's that's fair. I, I like what you've done. Anyway, so I do have this plan to go through the plot a little bit, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say how it's different from the one we just talked about. Um, and I'm going to tell you which puppets are which. So anyway, this one's narrated by none other than Charles Dickens, played by Gonzo the Great. And they didn't think Charles Dickens, played by Gonzo, was enough, so they they gave him a sidekick, a rat named Rizzo, that's going to talk about the movie. He's kind of like the he's like the comedic element. You know, they're just telling jokes back and forth. He jumps under a fence. There's all kinds of funny stuff <laughs> when he could have just like walked. O- no, he walks over the fence when he could have just walked through it. Um, 
Anyway, so Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge in this movie, he's played by Michael Caine. Everybody knows the story. He's a terrible person. But the people that work for him are actually rats. And um, so they're rat, rat puppets, I guess you would say, and a frog. And my question while they're working together, did these puppets know they're working with humans? Like, do they know they're interacting? Do you guys think they know that? That they're puppets and humans? It's an existential crisis if you think about it too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, do they operate off the same currency? How big of a-holes are we that we make them work in a human-sized house? Those mild mice are having to jump up to like get the blinds and everything. We're jerks. <laughs> I'm surprised that, you know, Scrooge didn't just start throwing some of those rats on the fire because puppets burn so well or something. You know, I don't <laughs> <laughs> the dark, the dark, the dark Muppet Christmas, where seven six-year-olds cried. Um, no, it, I mean it is fantastical. Um, it is what I think about. So there's that whole scene where they're working. They beg for, um, you know, Kermit the Frog's famous speech, where he t- talks them into letting the day off. Then he goes home, and that knocker scene that got everybody. If it wasn't the Mickey Mouse version, it was the Muppet version that scared you to death and you had nightmares one night because the rocker turns into like a ghost rocker. Um, then they go upstairs and the two partners, Marley and what's the Marley and Marley, yep. because there's a whole song in the Muppets called Marley and Marley, which is fantastic. Um, so that uh, they come visit. Then the ghost of Christmas, uh, a past comes and visits. And, and I don't know about you, Bill, Bill, you're a horror fan. Um, <laughs> that is a creepy but- ghost. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to say. So you guys have some movies with some creepy ghosts in them. I'm going to give you that. But the Muppets has the creepiest ghost ever in it. And it's it's not the ghost of Christmas future like all the other movies. It's the ghost of Christmas past. I don't know if you guys remember what she looks like. It's like a little uh, spirit with a crazy looking face with red hair and a white bonnet on. And it's like floating around. My kids like love it. But I was scared to the core. Were you, Bill? I mean, you're a horror guy. Uh, no, I was not scared to the core. No. No? Okay. No, I only no. just saw it for the first time, to be fair. like a, a Yeah, I had just seen it. But uh, it looks kind of a fairy to me. I was not scared of it. But, <laughs> it, the least it, but it has a different quality to it because it doesn't look like a Muppet. It's very ethereal. It, it looks is, like a is, mop with a strobe light attached on top of it. Yeah, it, it, looks, it looks almost like a um, jellyfish yeah, floating in the air. Very, you know? very uh, strange. I thought there was some bioluminescence going on or something when I was watching that. You know? Yeah, it's, it's something about it. The face is hard, but the body's floaty. You don't know where the puppeteer is. Maybe he's dead. That's how they're doing this. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> the ghost of Christmas past is very frightening, but she takes you through his past. You get to see that, you know, that he worked at a uh, Fozzie's uh, rubber chicken factory and he enjoyed a par- party. That answers questions about where rubber chickens were made for me. But it shows that he missed this chance with the love of his life. He took too long to propose. Then it goes to present. And it shows that his, uh, you know, Tiny Tim, the guy that Tommy hates, which is very <laughs> concerning and the only one in America, I'm sure. Everybody else was just appeasing you, my friend. They're all frightened to the core. <laughs> all of my ghosts are frightening actually come to think about it they should not have put this in Muppets the but, future one's actually I mean, the least creepy of the three he's just he's your average skeleton guy yeah then Scrooge meets the Chris, ghost of Christmas present which you're right is the least frightening of all the ghosts it's like it's like a grim reaper 
but he's got a turtleneck on. Like, so it's like nobody cares. Everybody, that's less. That's less frightening. You've never been attacked by a turtleneck person. So you know, it's it. It makes it safe for kids, and I like what they did there. But the other ghosts were too scary. They missed there. Um, but then in the Christmas present, this one goes deep. I mean, it shows his grave. It shows Tiny Tim's grave. It's like every you get a grave, you know. But it, you know, it gets. I mean, it gets the point across. I love the ending of this. He's out. He's given to everybody. The messages give to everybody. Um, this version does have some of the greatest set pieces, some great original songs that aren't in the movies. I really do like the songs, like all of them. Um, and I think just the atmosphere and the Muppets themselves and all the different Muppets um, that uh, are in this are just spectacular. So love the film. I don't have anything else. Guarantee you that uh, Christopher Nolan was at home just like glued to the television the entire time watching this. That's why, like, if Michael Caine's in something, Christopher Nolan's got his popcorn out. He's just like pining away. I want to be behind that camera. Do you think think Christopher Nolan was watching this and just really into one of the songs? And he was like, you know what this movie could use? A bump. About 30 bumps. But, uh, you know, that's a joke. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed seeing Beaker. It had been 30 years since I'd seen Beaker. Yes. I liked seeing him in it. <laughs> um, and I thought it was amusing when, uh, uh, in the Christmas past, when the rat the rat tail was burning. I, I got a kick out of that. Um, and what it was one heck of a band at Mr. Fuzzy Winkle's party, wasn't it? That was oh, a really good band that was animal. <laughs> and I loved, I loved the Ghost of Christmas Future. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, you just mentioned Beaker, Bill. Did you cry yeah. a little bit when Beaker gave Michael Caine his scarf? <laughs> or is that just me? I can't say I did, but okay. I did enjoy seeing him. Uh, this, this was my first viewing, as I said, uh, and I got to uh, uh, double up what you guys were saying. I think Michael Caine was excellent. Um, I mean, I, on all seriousness, being a, a method actor and being a very strong actor, having to act opposite an 18-inch foam Muppet must be difficult. And I think he pulled it off. I think he did better than I had actually expected him to be. And it just kind of shows the range. Like, going from some of his previous roles to this, he's really showing us a real thespian. And here's something to consider they with with uh muppet christmas carol and you guys are making the jokes about you know michael kane and how he's you know nolan and all of that but again in 1992 this time frame like michael kane was in sort of a drought area you know the movie that kind of brought michael kane back uh, regards of whether you think it's good or not was like the cider house rules and i think like what was that 99 or something like that he was kind of i mean this wasn't this isn't that many years after he made that terrible jaws movie and this is i want to say the same year or right before he did like the other movie he's on in at the same time he's in the muppets christmas carol is like on dangerous ground with steven seagal so this is a this is a point when he's not making those like people haven't necessarily forgotten that michael kane's a great actor but i think them putting him here in the Muppets and then allowing this to just be the Christmas Carol and a perfect one for young people because they keep a lot of the same language. I mean, there's probably more of, of uh, Dickens actual language 
in, in, in chunks of his story in this movie than there is in most of the Scrooge movies. And the Muppets get to be there as sort of commentary on it for younger people without trying to peddle. This story is not peddled to kids. The Muppets are actually sitting there explaining the context. You know, when they, they talk about who Scrooge is and about the workhouses and stuff like that, all of that stuff is done humorously through the Muppets. And um, yeah, it's like, it's fantastic. And the production values are great. Yeah. And we have this term on Real Talk, Nathan. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Tommy coined it first. I mean, would you say that this is Michael Caine's star making performance? Well, uh, it, 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 I would say maybe for a specific, uh, you know, generation, because obviously he had star making performances earlier than this in the 60s and the 70s. But he, he was always kind of reinventing himself. I don't think I don't know that it 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 was like the star making or his kind of like comeback. But I think that it of the movies he made in that time frame, this clearly became iconic in a way that lots of his other roles didn't, because I think a lot of people think, you know, he's one of the best Scrooges. Just, just as an aside, I always liked him on blame it on Rio. (laughs) And don't forget about jaws, the revenge. Yeah. (laughs) How many times you get to play a guy named Hoagie? He had a great quote on that movie. They asked him after it came out. They're like, what do you think about it? He goes, I haven't seen the movie, but I saw the house it built and it's beautiful. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. I mean, he was, I think you're right. Like he was really into some paycheck roles for like a 10 to 15 year uh, yeah. period there in the eighties. But I think this did bring him back for a new generation. Well, I've got really bad news. He actually died four or five years ago, but Christopher Nolan it just keeps propping him up in movies. So it's like, uh, CGI. I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. We got to get some Michael came back in here. Just right back up. Um, it's 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 a weekend at Bernie's situation. Have they made him a sir yet? Because he should be. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah, I think he definitely is. He's got to be. But yeah, he's so good. All right, Bill, you're up. I'm up. So the movie I chose was 1988 Scrooged. And while it's not the most iconic version of the story, it is probably the most comical version of the story that I know of. It's probably the one that an entire generation from 84 to 94 kind of knows. And so it stars Bill Murray and a huge cast, which I'll get into in a minute. It was directed by Richard Donner. And for those of you not familiar with Richard Donner, he brought us the Lethal Weapon franchise. He brought us Goonies. He brought us Conspiracy Theory. He's got a whole long list of movies. And this kind of was right in the meat, the heart of his height. So he kind of pulled all the strings he could to get all this cast together. Just to let you know the type of cast we got here. We're talking with Bill Murray. We're talking Karen Allen. We're talking John Forsyth. We're talking Bobcat Goldthwait. We're talking Buster Poindexter himself, David Johansson. We're talking Carol Kane, Robert Mitchum, Alfre Woodard, Jamie Farr, Robert Goulet, Lee Majors. Like you've got a cast of a thousand. Uh, you got Buddy Epson in the or Buddy Hackett, Buddy Epson, Buddy Hackett in this one. You've got a lot of people in this. That and so, like a Saturday Night Live reunion you just named there. Yeah, and short of short of Elliot Gould, that's pretty much had everything that you're <laughs> looking for. Um, and I mean, there's even uh, Brian Mo- Doyle Murray who is in this. Uh, there's the other younger brother that was in Moving Violations is in this. Like it was everybody is in this one. Um, 
So it opens with one of the best openings you're ever going to have because Bill Murray is a TV executive. I kind of think he's like the head of programming. And he's not quite at the top, but he's bucking for the top. And he wants to do everything he can to get ahead in business in this TV station and be the man of man who takes control. And he'll stop at nothing to get there. I called him a cynical, cold-hearted TV executive out for ratings, and he has no humanity or Christmas spirit. And the, it opens with these little vignettes, these teaser reels of shows that they have in the works. And the one I wrote down was, there's one with Lee Majors called Night, the Reindeer Died. And it's it's hilarious. You got to see this. It's like reindeer death on screen. Like it always goes for the butts and guts. And, or the Robert Goulet Cajun Christmas. And, and, like it's hilarious. But as the story goes, you kind of get him going from the peak of being this TV executive wanting to get to the top and the ghosts, as the story will take you, you get the backstory of it. And at the same time, the TV station is doing a TV made for TV movie that was, I think it was going live to air of a Christmas Carol. So you've got Buddy Hackett in it and you've got all the acting going on. And from time to time, Bill Murray, as the ghosts are taking him in and out of his various past, present, and future, he pops in and out of the TV version of A Christmas Carol that's in full period pieces. Um, you've got Bobcat Goldthwaite plays the Bob Cratchit type character. Uh, you've got uh, Alfred Woodard plays his assistant. And typical to the movie, he fires Bobcat and so he's left out on his own. And but it does take a very dark twist that the others just don't. Uh, Bobcat ends up using probably illegal firearms at the end of the movie, and he kind of uses a hostage situation to get his point across, which you're not going to see in any other version. I'll guarantee you that. Um, there's great comedy. Well, while it's dark, it is funny, and there's one scene where they're doing the movie. And Bill Murray's kind of getting in the way and kind of saying, you know, you have to be here. Let's save some money there. Let's get this actor here. There's a whole discussion over one of the ladies who's playing one of the women uh, on the side of the film about seeing her nipples. And, and I'm just laughing and bawling myself over because of all the things he's worried about. So seeing nipples, really, that's your issue. Um, I think David Johansson, who plays the ghost of um, Christmas uh, past, does a really good job as a cab driver who takes him around to see what his life was like before when he had a heart and he was in love and Karen Allen was his love interest. And it's probably the most provocative scene of any version you're ever going to see. And, you know, you get uh, David Forsyth is in there and uh, Forsyth plays the ghost or sorry, he plays one of the executives and you've got the, Christmas Present is played by Carol Kane, wonderful actress. And no matter what she's in, you'll always remember her. And her voice is very high, but she plays it like almost not slapsticky, but kind of like irreverent. I love that in an actress, and she does a good. Michael Pollard, I haven't mentioned, who's in a thousand films, has a really good role in this film. Small but memorable. Uh, there's a fun game of Trivial Pursuit that gets played in the present time. And everybody, I don't know about you, but I was screaming at the TV, SS Minnow, 
SS Minnow. Everybody's got to know the name of the ship from Gilligan's Island. Um, for 1988, I thought there were some really nice practical effects. Uh, when the Harbinger ghost comes to kind of warn him, uh, he throw, he gets a golf ball and a mouse come out of the back of his head. And that's all practical. Everything is practical in this. I don't know if it's done on purpose or, I mean, he had the finances. He just chose to do it that way. Bill, um, that, that scene looks great too. Like I, I just watched this last night and I was like, those effects are fantastic. It, like for a, a movie of that age, it really holds up. And it, while, and I mean, you've got John Houseman, John Houseman's voice is iconic. <laughs> it's hello, sir. How you like, he's got that voice to him. And you know what? It's not going to be the most faithful. It's very dark and vengeful at the end. Uh, you've got uh, some pseudo sex scenes in it that you don't have in any other version, but there's also a lightheartedness. There's also a playfulness. Uh, seeing all the assorted cast members is great. And as I say, I think for a certain generation, this is the version they know and they think of. And while no, is it faithful to the book? No, it is thematically, but not step by step or page by page. But really, don't overlook this one. It's a lot of fun. I don't know what you guys thought about this one. Now, when you say it's darker, I mean, it's a lot darker. You got a lot of like really, you got zombie ghosts drinking like water or whatever that is, and it's coming out of his body. You've got people walking through walls. It's it's a it's a dark dark movie, Bill. Um, and, and you know they said that this was and 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 I see it. This was a big star making performance for Bill because even though in Ghostbusters he made it his point to like carry the movie, in this movie he had to carry the movie because he's the main person the whole movie. So I don't know what you guys think of that, but I mean maybe this was a like star type making performance for him because it, he'd never done that before yeah it's more of that movie star thing and i think that like you pointed out the elements of it the darker elements of it are they're done you can tell that this is like oh hey guys remember uh, ghostbusters let's do this let's do the car comedy version of that with with murray in it i mean it's murray's basically the same thing that the muppets are in the muppets christmas carol it's like we need a gimmick yeah, I, I actually watched this one last night. First time that I had seen it since I was, oh, maybe 10, 11, 12, sometime around in there. And I liked the first half of it. And Bill, you probably won't like this, but when the ghost of uh, present shows up, the the fairy, and it my opinion, it did get kind of slapsticky. I really didn't like the movie as much after that. Overall, I think the movie is good. I was cracking up at a lot of the one-liners that Bill Murray has towards the beginning. But personally, I feel like the movie just loses its way just a little bit towards the middle. Um, I found myself checking my phone a few times, which that's usually an indication that you know the movie is not... Uh, it's not really holding my attention the way that I want. Now, some of that has to do with, I think this is definitely a product of its time. So I think whenever you go back to whenever it was released, it just is going to have, if, you know, if you're a, f we're a fan of it since it was released, it's going to, 
feel different to you. It's going to be more nostalgic than it is to somebody who, you know, hasn't visited it in, you know, so many years. But um, anyway, not not a huge fan of this one. I would probably rate it maybe like a 6.5 out of 10. Uh, and again, I felt like it lost its way just a little bit uh, there towards towards the middle. Uh, I've guys, we're on other people's podcasts. I mean, we've got Wes saying that he doesn't like Bill Murray now. We got freaking T Man saying he doesn't <laughs> like Tiny Tim. I mean, what? I mean, guys, we're trying to make a name for ourselves. You can't keep doing this stuff. Yeah, you make a great point, Gabe. Wes hates Bill Murray. That's that's what he's known for. Let me just add a couple of things about Scrooge. I do really like Scrooge, but I think Wes is also right in that. Um, it does lose steam in the second half, I think. Like, I've never been a big fan of his last speech as, like, that's the finale. It, like, it doesn't come across sincere. It, true. It, do, it really doesn't. He's just doing his usual, like, Bill Murray stuff, which is great. I love Bill Murray, unlike Wes. Um, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but. It also doesn't feel really like, you know, a Christmas Carol. That's not really like no. what happens in a Christmas Carol. And it's just, it's almost like they were like, well, we got Bill Murray. We need to have him like do a big stand up routine at the very end of the movie. And I, I, you can see what they're going for. I just don't know if it actually works. But I, I do like the like meta comedy that they're going for. It is pretty funny. Uh, the other thing, uh, whenever I watch it, I'm always wondering is what the hell is wrong with Bobcat's voice? Like, does anybody else wonder that? <laughs> it is very bizarre. Like his voice, like I having met Bobcat a couple times, his voice kind of sounds like that, but he was doing something with it in the eighties. He was torturing it. And I think he was trying to come up with something. I think, I don't know if he was kind of trying to go for the whole Sam Kinison thing. You know, that's been a point that Kinison was always mad. He kind of felt like Bobcat was trying to get a hold of his shtick. But he kind of sounds like that. But it, he was definitely putting it through its paces like there in the 80s. Yeah, it is obviously over. Like, he is overdoing it to the extreme. Yeah. Where it's like, it's like, what in the world is happening right now? So, any anyway. The other thing I didn't like is like, I know I was really bashing Tiny Tim, but like, Alfred Woodward, like her family, I don't think they get enough exposure. Like you don't honestly get that redemption from Bill Murray's arc either. I don't think like they don't do a good job of that because you don't get to know the characters and Alfred Woodward's like character has the potential and she's a great actress to really like, she's the only one that kind of comes off as being a person, you know, Mm -hmm. in the sense of, okay, you're not just meant to be a, like a placeholder for the other characters. Did you also think it was odd there's almost a it almost feels like i don't know if it was retroactively but it's kind of like sparsely done the idea that it's just kind of be anti-television like his big speech at the end is more about like oh why are you watching so much television and there's this whole bit where like the ghost of christmas past is railing on him because you never lived your life all you did was watch television and yet he is this big exec like he might have lost his soul but like i'm not sure that that couch potato thing where he's remembering all his memories is like no that's you know that's uh, my two sons or whatever. And he's talking about all these other shows that Eddie, that Bill's memories have come from. But I didn't get that that storyline was really held through. Like, was it supposed to be that he's a couch potato that, you know, how does that sync up with the Scrooge story? It just felt odd that there was so much of that in the movie, but it felt like it was added on as an afterthought. 
No, that's a that's a great point, and I kind of felt like that too. And Timon, you mentioned not him not really redeeming himself. I, he redeemed himself to Karen Allen. I I don't know that he really did with anything else. Maybe his brother too. He, you know, he mentions you know, his brother and about coming over and stuff like that. But it just, it didn't feel as earned as what it did in some of these other adaptations of the story. The, the other thing I liked, I was watching it and I, I mean, it, it had been 25 years since I'd seen it. I go, there, it's that street scene. And I'm going, that's Miles Davis. That's, isn't that Miles Davis? And, and then I look over and that looks like Paul Schaefer. So they had a really good musical <laughs> band that was, it was supposed to be kind of like a street band hustling on the corner. Turned out it was world-class musicians. David Sanborn, you know, like you got Larry Carlton. Like you got guys that know how to play. And they're just, you know, hustling for quarters. <laughs> I, I love Paul Schaefer. Yeah. <laughs> Did you all, the other thing that I think is watching this, and this might help too with the idea of oh, the Eddie of uh, Bill Murray as, this, you know, his star-making turn or whatever, I think this movie's fun. I like the special effects. As a kid, it did make me think, oh, this is the kind of, monstery horror version but ultimately i agree with what you're saying wes i don't think it really holds up as a version of this christmas carol but it seems like it's almost a template for groundhog day right like it's almost like harold ramus looks at this as like we could do this a bit better mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point yep. the problem with the darkest moments i think in this movie really dark is when he the street people are frozen to death in this i mean he's basically looking at a frozen body like that's that's darker than most of the Scrooges that, you know, he finds them under the bridge and stuff in the, in the George C. Scott one, but he's basically looking at a frozen dead body up against a wall in this version. And then that, if you think back to kind of what happens at Groundhog Day, there's an element of that too, with the street guy who ends up dying of exposure, you know, and there's nothing he can really do about it. So I watch these pieces. I'm like, well, you know, they kind of, they kind of refine this when they get to, to Groundhog Day. I was actually going to make the same co- comment, uh, Nathan. Um, I was the whole time I watched this movie, I was thinking just Groundhog Day, but Groundhog Day does it better, I think, because it's just, yeah, it's so good. I mean, it, it, I just, I think this is like almost a little bit worse Christmas version of Groundhog Day, and I was actually going to say that, but you took it, you took it from me. Yeah, my, my complaint, sorry, <laughs> my complaint with this movie is it doesn't know what it is. Is it a horror movie? Is it a comedy? Is it a social commentary? It, it, it seems not. It seems to be having trouble getting that across. Like marketing this, I think they market it basically as a comedy, but it isn't a straight-ahead comedy film. And I feel like if this had had anybody else in it but Bill Murray, it would be one of those things that's relegated to like Comedy Central in the mid-'90s, and then everyone just kind of forgot about it. It'd be on Tubi right now. Five ninety nine DVD bend at Best Buy. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I just noticed going through the cast, uh, uh, the, the Screw Jets were played by the Solid Gold Dancers. <laughs> I had no idea. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if this was uh, uh, some other actor other than Bill Murray, I agree. If this was uh, Bob Denver or something playing, you know. <laughs> or something, you know, it would have fallen, fallen by the wayside. Yeah, so uh, we, you know, we have that version, and I think again, the the theme so far has been when you, the further you move away from that, when you kind of just adopt the tropes of the story, 
without really understanding the story. I think that's when we've seen a ton of that. Scrooge actually is better than some of the movies that try to do the Scrooge story because of that. But I think it just shows the the, the power of Dickens' actual story and its structure that when you start to kind of move away from that, it just isn't as effective. You can't just throw the ghosts out there. You can't throw out, this guy's a jerk. Later, he's not going to be a jerk. It does lose almost all of that social element, uh, societal element that we were talking about. And then the version uh, that I picked, and I picked it again, not because I think it's really one of the maybe the best versions, but it's a version that's different. And I think that it's I didn't even see it until a couple of years ago in 2015. Uh, relatives recommended it to me. And I actually think it is one that's worth seeing. I was a little surprised by how good it was, particularly when I thought about it going in. Uh, it's from 1979. It's called An American Christmas Carol. It specifically takes place in the 30s. And it stars Henry Winkler, yeah, the Fonz. And actually in 1979, not that many years off of being the Fonz, playing elderly Ebenezer Scrooge and he's in the old man makeup which is again this is a TV movie the makeup is not necessarily amazing Amadeus win awards makeup however I do think it's pretty good and if you look at what Henry Winkler looks like now at say 75 <laughs> the makeup's not that far off <laughs> and uh, and I don't I don't mean that as a as a as a as a joke. I mean they actually tried to you know fit the makeup to his face and everything and make him look older. It isn't just like pancake makeup put on and you know things like that. They 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 did a reasonable job of trying to age Henry Winkler. I think and I think Winkler's actually pretty good in the movie. I mean there's a limited range, but he uh, the interesting thing about this movie is they do change the names much like Scrooge. But they try to, they really are trying to adapt the story and adapt particularly that social element because now he's, it's in New England or is in the, in the Midwest. I'm trying to remember where exactly it's located, but it's during the Great Depression. And he, uh, he's a little bit different, Scrooge, in the sense of, yeah, he's a miser, but there's that element that American can do, get yourself up by your bootstraps. And I, I really want, I have well intentions. I want to see people be able to do for themselves, and that's my goal. But he he's re, he's taken charity out of that context completely in his own life. And when the ghosts show up, the ghosts don't appear as the versions that we're very familiar with. They actually it, it's almost more of a Wizard of Oz kind of deal or something where you have um, the characters show up and they are representative of people in his life you know so that some of the people who he came and he repossessed stuff from because they've fallen down on their payments you know one of them is the ghost of christmas future and his uh the the guy who he's repossessed all the like uh textbooks and things and the piano from the the boys school the, these characters show up as the ghosts so there's that kind of element and so they try to play that a little bit more realistically the thing i appreciate i appreciate the setting of the movie and I like that they try to really delve into the story. They do make Tiny Tim a little more of a character here. And the idea that not only, you know, it's always kind of weird too, is how does Scrooge's redemption save Tiny Tim? You know, you mentioned that, well, what is his illness? Why, does, why is Scrooge being a good man or not a good man actually help Tiny Tim? And although it's slightly contrived, they have this element that, that there's a doctor that Tiny Tim can go to and, and receive help, but... Scrooge could have that potential to help him, you know, if he if he had known about it or he could put the money towards it. But otherwise, I've always wondered about that. It's like, well, how does Tiny Tim just miraculously survive whether Scrooge 
could, could the doctor have been any further away? Holy it was a little crap. weird in the 1930s. The best they could do is put him on a steamship to Australia. That was that was interesting. But I think that the movie is it, it does have some poignancy to it. I think that the character wise, the interesting thing is they don't just make him a a jerk, but a man who is who's kind of misguided in what he thinks the right way is forward. And it's very well produced. And I think that even though it has maybe some of those Hallmark elements to it, this is pre-Hallmark or proto-Hallmark. You know, I think a lot of Hallmark movies probably wanted to be of this quality. But um, I really, I liked it a lot. And it is a, it's a slightly different take. And it does bring those social elements back to the foreground. So did anyone else get a chance to see this one? I did. Is there anybody else? Any of the Real Talk Boys? This is the only one I have not seen. Me, me as well. Yeah, I haven't either, and I, I think I mentioned it earlier. Um, maybe I was just, I can't remember if I told you all this. This is one that I actually bought my dad for Christmas two years ago because he loves it. So if he was on here right now, he could talk about it. But I, honestly, I feel bad now because I was actually making fun of him for wanting, wanting it because he actually asked for it for Christmas. I'm like, who asked for an American Carol starring Henry Winkler for Christmas? <laughs> But uh, he did, and he likes it a lot. And I feel bad now because you gave such a good review for it. And I kind of want to ask him to borrow and watch it now. It's on Amazon Prime. You can watch it and never have to like take your viewpoint back. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I hope he tells you no. If anything, (laughs) don't tell him. Nobody tells us anything. I'm going to double down. We'll double down on him. That's the whole point of a Christmas story, isn't that the message? Yeah, doubling down, doubling down. On, on you, on, and he be, on being wrong. It's like, the, it's like the Black Adder Christmas special when they show him how awful all of his future selves are, and he just gets worse. <laughs> oh, that's so true. But on, I want to see that version now. On your on your recommendation, I am going to watch it now uh, because it sounds really good, actually. It's, it's interesting. You completely sold me. I just, you know, I just hadn't had time to get to all five of them. And, um, you know, Wes, maybe part of the reason, and I forgot to say this earlier, you got a little bit bored during Scrooge is you had watched A Christmas Carol five times in a row. Yes. Right? Uh, maybe yeah, that's, that's why you true. got a little bored halfway through Scrooge because you knew the plot. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I didn't get to watch this one, but you've completely, there's very seldomly I'm completely sold on watching a movie, but I will watch it when we get done with this podcast tonight. What's funny. I was watching, I was talking with Greg Amortis, Greg Morgan, and he said he really liked this version uh, of the story. So, uh, so going into it, that's what I kind of knew. A couple of things. I, I did find it a little melodramatic at times, That uh, that's, I guess that proto Hallmarkian kind of feel. That's the kind of feel you get from it. Um, who knew the fonts, the fawns dance so well in a three piece suit? <laughs> who knows? You know, like, cause you see them dancing in like a barn dance. Um, the one legitimate criticism though, is I didn't feel there was enough presence of the ghosts. Uh, I, they kind of lead him to the story, but then the story plays out. You don't see the ghosts interject nearly as much as you do in any other interpretation. Yeah. This is more heavily Scrooge and the ghosts are almost it's almost like they try to reduce the supernatural elements as much as possible it's even the case where he you know he's repossessed a bunch of books and he's tearing them apart and one of the books he has is a Christmas Carol 
by Charles Dickens, and he's kind of like reading it or flipping through it. And you get the idea, they do leave that possibility open more so than the other versions that these ghosts, being that they are people he knows, and then he's just been kind of glancing at this story, uh, that all of this could be, you know, sort of contrived in his mind. You know, they don't really say that, but it seems like the story is trying to be as realistic as possible. What did you think? I am curious. What did you think about Henry Winkler's performance, Bill? Uh, It was all right. Like, like it was believable. It moved the story along. And I think he probably was stretched a little bit due to the limitations of what was provided for him, but uh, he was all right. He was okay. I mean, he's no, he's no Alistair Sims or he's no Michael Caine, but but he was he was he was decent. Um, I, I I wrote down in an odd way the melodrama works, but is very cheesy. There there is a bit of the cheese factor in this, and you have to know that going in. Um, I thought the burning of Winkler's portrait at the end was a nice touch, uh, in the big fire. Um, the one person I did think was strong was Dorian Harewood, who played the ghost of Christmas future and, uh, or present, the ghost of Christmas present, the man that whose uh, uh, possessions they were taking off the farm. I thought he was really strong in this and he had a pretty funky outfit when he was showing Henry Winkler. Oh yeah. Yeah. He is, he is the ghost of Christmas future. Cause he shows up, it's the 1930s and he shows up in seventies. Like, yeah, he's got full, full leather jacket and stuff like that. Gold chains and an open chest there. But yeah, I, I thought he was really good. I mean, anybody who's seen Full Metal Jacket or Assault on Precinct 13, the new one, you know who Dorian Harewood is. Uh, he's a really good actor. So is it my favorite of them all? No. Is it worth watching? Yes. Some people might like it more than others, uh, but I do think it is worth a watch. And I was saying, I was surprised this got a DVD release because there's so many made-for-TV movies from that time that have you know, the tape has probably been wiped. So for the fact that it gets a DVD release means it does have some staying power. And the, and the American and the, in the thirties depression era, they really build that into the story. It isn't just a kind of gimmick or a backdrop. I mean, you got to give it credit for that, that it does build, build that uniquely into the Scrooge story. Yeah, and they do spend, I think, more time on the Bob Cratchit angle than in any of the stories. Yeah, you feel for him. I felt that was the only one where the emphasis is on how Bob, how Tiny Tim's affliction affects Bob himself, and that's what makes it poignant more than this, God bless us, everyone. You know, you see a, a, a father struggling with his inability to do, do what he needs to do for his son, and I think that's what makes it poignant in this version over some of the other. But, but I mean, but I mean, the point that he has to go all the way, all the way to Australia in the 1930s. How are you going to How are you going to communicate by like, you know, uh, hover pigeon? Like, how are you going to get hover, your, Don't like, all like, pigeons hover? <laughs> whatever you know. Like, are you going to be? So do you, do you, do you book the appointment over a, a month long mail and then get the uh, acknowledgement a month later? Like, how does that work? I don't know. Too much analysis, Bill. This is like the uh, <laughs> Muppet procreation. <laughs> anyway, so anyways, it, it was interesting. I'll I'll give him that. Yeah, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I do think it's worth seeing. It is on Prime right now, and if you're someone who's like just looking for a different version of the Christmas Carol, I, I think it does work nicely. And then Wes, how about your movie? All right, well. <laughs> 
If uh, anybody has still made it, because we were on your show to this point, uh, <laughs> hopefully I can take us home. But I do have to say, I feel a little bit like the right fielder, ninth batter on a peewee baseball team <laughs> in, in this last spot here. But uh, anyway, I'll just pretend. But, but it's the bad news bears. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's true. I'll, I'll just pretend that, that I'm the anchor here, and that'll that'll help my self-esteem as we go through this. <laughs> but, um, okay, so I'll get to this in just a second, about. but I'm going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. And this movie, it's been a part of my life really since I was very young. My mom loves this movie. Our family owned it on VHS, which was kind of a big thing in our household because we didn't own very many movies. You know, mom has always been more of a, a book person instead of movies. Uh, she, however, was just a fan of the classics, especially Christmas movies. So the reason that I'm talking about her on this show is not because, I guess, apparently I'm a mama's boy, but because I have heard a thing for my love of, of the classics. In particular, It's a Wonderful Life. In no time in my previous rewatches and revisits of this movie has I enjoyed it as much as I did just a few days ago. And as a side note, my wife watched it with me, but she doesn't like black and white movies. Is I guess that's a thing that people say. So we had to watch the color version, which I did not. That's the first time I'd seen the color version. I don't recommend doing that. Stick with the black and white. But this movie, it's truly incredible. One of the best stories ever brought to film a beautiful story, and just for funsies, I thought I would share its resume. It's nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, was on American Film Institute's 100 Best Movies Ever, number 11 on the 98 list, and number 20 on the most recent, the 2007 list, was number one on the list of most inspirational American films, and was added to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 1990. So, if you what was the was the Karate Kid number two? I think it was. It was right <laughs> right behind that. You go from Mister Wonderful Life to Wax On Wax Off, <laughs> which funny. is why T Man has viruses on his computer. Did you steal the first part piece from me, Wes? Did you do that on the show? Do what now? Did you just straight up steal the word funsies from me? No, that was a Dane Cook word. Uh huh. Okay. So anyway, I just, for your audience, if they have not seen It's a Wonderful Life or haven't seen it in forever, I just wanted to point out again, like how much of a classic film this is and, and it's considered. Okay. So why are we talking about It's a Wonderful Life on an episode dedicated to A Christmas Carol? Well, when Nathan asked us to be on the show and talk A Christmas Carol, we were supposed to review a version of the story brought to film. And there were a lot of other choices I could have reviewed. But in the back of my mind, I have always seen the parallels between It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. So much so that I truly wonder, would It's a Wonderful Life exist without A Christmas Carol? So what I'm going to do with my time here is attempt to basically convince you that it's just a loose adaptation of A Christmas Carol. And I'm going to wrap the synopsis and some of the plot points of the movie around A Christmas Carol, the story. 
And so let's make this interactive too. It's just not, not me talking the whole time. If you guys agree or disagree with my points, hop in and, and say so. But It's a Wonderful Life is directed by iconic Frank Capra. And what's crazy about his filmography is it consists of three movies to be considered the greatest of all time. Three movies he has. That is extremely impressive. The other two being Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It Happened One Night. It stars James Stewart as George Bailey. Donna Reed plays his wife and love interest. Uh, Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter and Henry Travers as Clarence the Angel. So my first point, I have six of them. My first point, the movie focuses on our protagonist, George Bailey, a man who is giving up his own dreams to help others and whose imminent suicide on Christmas Eve brings about the intervention of his guardian angel, Clarence. Clarence shows George how George has touched the lives of others and how different life would have been for those in his community had he not been born. So both stories, talking about Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life, they focus on the lives led by the protagonists and how their lives have ramifications outside of what they see and or what they're aware of. The difference is the narratives of George Bailey and Scrooge, they're told in reverse. With you watching George Bailey grow up to reaching his intervention point, whereas with Scrooge, we meet him at his intervention point and work our way backwards to show how he became this way. Then we switch again, where George Bailey is shown as a much grimmer version of the world if he had never existed, whereas Ebenezer Scrooge is shown the world would be a better place without him in his current state. I don't know if y'all have anything to say about point one there. No, I, I had never actually thought of it that way. Um, it's interesting where the intervention occurs and the kind of state they're in when it happens. But you know what? That, that's a really good point. I'd never thought of that. Wes, you want to know the first thing I noticed, and I don't mean to be critical. All of our movies had the the title A Christmas Carol in it or is <laughs> <laughs> a character from the Christmas Carol, but your title had nothing to do with it. So Gabe's not won over yet. In other words. Yeah. You, you got to do a little bit more. You got a little more wax on wax off with him. Okay. And, and when Wes said this, like the, the to, just to the point, you, your point one, when you mentioned this, Wes, that it, essentially you do have that same element of, Characters at the brink, you know, regardless of how the story structures it, they're at a moment of potential like oblivion, right? Like whether it's Scrooge who's oblivion, doesn't matter if it comes tomorrow or 10 years from now, he's he's kind of uh, lost. And Bailey's a little more immediate, but, you know, if things don't get turned around, he's also lost. But the way I th- looked at it, it's almost like, wonderful life is what if the ghosts had come to Bob Cratchit, you know, in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Actually, I should have written that one down. Uh, <laughs> so my second point, Mr. Potter is the, is in a one in it's a wonderful life is the film's antagonist. He's an older, ruthless, selfish, rich, evil little man who wants to hold others down and keep them in lower class to continue making money off of them. Is that ringing any bells? 
I mean, hmm. Ebenezer I Scrooge is literally in It's a Wonderful Life yep. just in the form of Mr. Potter. They bear more than a resemblance. And of course, this is pre-redemption Ebenezer Scrooge. You didn't give us time to answer the question. I was going to say now, go, go for it. I just, I just a couple of little statements. And then Marley, I'll, I'll, just like Marley. <laughs> Scrooge. So anything else on that one? One one point you may be going there. I don't want to jump too much at West, but with with Potter, the interesting thing I always thought about Potter because as you point out, he's the antagonist. And what the interesting thing about an antagonist in this film is, even you don't necessarily expect him to be murdered or anything, but nothing happens to him at all. Right. Nothing negative happens to him. And I don't know. You may have an upcoming point with that, but I do think that that's that does tie into the Scrooge thing. I think you know that he ultimately nothing happens to Potter to the point where SNL did a skit where. Jimmy Stewart led a raid, and they and they did lynch him. <laughs> <laughs> I need to look that up. I bet that's awful. And, 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 and whatever happened to that eight grand? What did it, what did he spend it on? Uh, he probably just he just burned it and yeah. smoked a cigar. Yeah. Probably so. <laughs> he just kept himself warm for a little bit, just in the fire. <laughs> All right, Nick. My next point is that George is George Bailey, not visited by three ghosts, but basically Clarence Oddbody. He is the ghost of Christmas past and present, wrapped into one. And I could even argue a little bit further that because of the past and present being so different, it also changes the course of the future, making Clarence really all three ghosts in one. My next point on that is earlier that I mentioned each protagonist reaches a point of intervention and who performs these interventions? In both cases, supernatural beings. Not only do they perform the intervention, but they're done in very disturbing ways, which of course that's needed to bring forth the change in each man. So again, those last two points there, both movies very similar in that those regards. I see what you're saying. Both movies have ghosts. That's right. Except for he's really an angel in It's a Wonderful Life. However, that's why I called it a supernatural being, Gabe. Gotcha. But see, I think that the ghost in Wonderful Life is George Bailey. It, once George Bailey has wished himself away and not to be not to exist. George Bailey's essentially the ghost in that reality. You know, nobody knows who he is and mm, I like no that. longer exists. So in a sense, a wonderful life is a ghost story too. It, you know, if we were reading this as a short story or something like that, that would sort of be the, the gist of it. He's take, he is doing what, what uh, Scrooge did where he's able to visit these different facets and those, whether it's past, present and future, he's still again, the same things he's himself revealed to himself, the kind of person he really is. And, who his peers think he is, and what society will think of him when he's gone. The same things that Scrooge comes on. Mm-hmm. And aren't they both uh, on the fantasy realm? They're both alternate history movies. Yeah. Alternate are. versions of, rea- of reality. No, they are. That's a, that's a great point. And Nathan, you said if it was a short story, the actual story that this is adapted from, which I think I had in, in my notes... Uh, apparently not. Anyway, it was a short story that was written in 1938 by 
Philip Van Doren. So uh, it, it originally started out as as a short story that they then adapted and you know, made into you know a two hour plus movie. All right, the last point I have, and this is a two parter. I wanted to make some thematical comparisons at the heart of both stories. First, many people have thematically compared A Christmas Carol to Christianity, which this is also very much applies to It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm not here to make a religious statement, but simply to factually compare these elements. In both stories, having a spirit of generosity of spirit and following the examples Christ laid out biblically those are not a run run of the mill decisions. Both require much sacrifice that goes, like I was talking about earlier, goes against the common wants of the flesh. In George Bailey's case, he sacrifices his wants and desires for the greater good of the town and those that he cares about. For Scrooge, after he is redeemed, his character will now have to live a life of sacrifice in serving others. And one cannot become a server of others without sacrifice. It has to take place. And again, this is the ultimate message of each story. And then the second point I wanted to make on that, which is truly my final one, is, and this will be much shorter, both stories are about giving second chances. And so I'll conclude by using an illustration. If we were, let's say where you were to frame up each story, and we're using a house as a visual. The foundation, the floor plan, the framing, the structure of the roof of each story, they are the same. It's just the material that's used on the outside of the house, the colors, and the decoration that's different. I'll rest my case. Don't, don't leave out the title. Yes, the title <laughs> different as well. <laughs> this sermon was brought to you by... <laughs> But no, I just I, I just wanted to sit and think about that because I don't know why every time that people talk about a Christmas carol, I always think about it's a wonderful life. And after really thinking about it and reading a little bit more into it, I was like, man, these movies are these stories. I'm sorry, these stories are very, very similar. It's just again, they're just a little bit different. Um, but the heart of the story is there. In a roundabout way, they're both trying to get around, uh, across the same message, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, good job, Wes, on that. I would say the only, the only issue I have with that is that I think the themes are the same. I just feel like the stories are just so much different. Like, It's a Wonderful Life, like three-fourths of the movie is not even like to the point of Christmas. Like, It's like a lot of other stuff happens before. So like the structures are just so different that it's hard for me to think that they're similar. Like, I think you can like say the themes are very similar, but I just feel like the stories are so different other than the very last 30 minutes of it's a wonderful life. Then it does kind of become what you, what you're referring to. And that's really for the long, for the longest time, you know, growing up, I just, I only remembered that last 30 minutes or so once Clarence shows up and because that's all that, you know, whenever they show the movie in other movies, like in Home Alone, you know, there's a scene where they're, he's watching It's a Wonderful Life and he's running and it's, hello, movie house, and, and different things. You know, that's whenever you think about It's a Wonderful Life, you think about 
from the point where he's about to jump right. off the bridge and the angel shows up and uh, it's Zuzu's pedals. Yeah. Yeah. Know, all uh, that. And I think well, you're, you're, I was going to say both films have the role of women somewhat, I wouldn't say prominent, but they do play a strong part in both films. One, uh, his loss in the Christmas Carol of not pursuing or keeping his love to keep the woman. And in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, using what he can to use his abilities to keep the woman. Mm-hmm. I think it's a theme that runs in both. And both of them run an emotional tug to your heart. Even though you know like It's a Wonderful Life, I hadn't seen it in 15 years, you know it's coming, you still get that heartstrings being pulled. It's You know it's coming, you still get them. And at the end of Christmas Carol, you know what the end's going to be, but you still feel like, my gosh, he's actually turned it around. So there's that emotional heartstring pull on both films. Does anybody else think about Phoebe Buffay when they watch this movie? They're like, when you know, I don't know if you guys watch Friends. It's when she when she watches it, she's like, "It's not a wonderful life. It's a terrible life." Mm-hmm. Does anybody? Nobody. Okay. It, I, it it really never not one single time mm-hmm. entered my thoughts. No, I, <laughs> I do just me. I again. do know one thing. Anyway. real quick. Sorry, Gabe. I was gonna say, Wes. Whether whatever we come to conclusion on this or not, I know we're, what you got to do tonight. I think you know, need to go to Reddit and you need to put all that down there. Because this has the makings of a great Reddit thread. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone gets stabbed. <laughs> someone will read it. What was what? The, yeah. What did I say earlier? Like, imagine if Scrooge had been visited, visited instead by Splinter and the uh, four Ninja Turtles. But uh, <laughs> I still want to see that episode of the show. I do, yeah. With, again, a Shredder. It could have been, you know, it's a wonderful Shredder or something. But. Yeah, and I think that maybe that's one of the things about the both of those movies, I mean, or the movie and, and the story, they've become such centerpieces, I think, uh, of Christmas because of the themes that are sort of identified with Christmas. And of course, like we mentioned before, there's that spiritual element. There's also the fact that Christmas holiday-wise... Uh, you 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 have at the center of it, right? The the virgin birth and the birth and the birth of Christ and sort of the beginning of of the good news. The beginning, you know, this is the, the the savior. What happens at Easter isn't here yet, and so there is this element of birth and rebirth that is sort of present in both of those stories. You know, like with Scrooge, he's almost sort of reborn in a sense later in life. Uh, be, you know. Christmas Day, he is giddy like a child. He's new, sort of, for the first time. All of the failures of his previous life aren't really considered because he has, you know, he has kind of finally arrived in a sense. And in in, in Bailey, he's, you know, he's a good guy. He's doing the right things, and yet he comes upon, you know, he has that moment and a kind of crisis of of faith in what he's been doing in the people around him, if any, any of it's been worth it. And I think there's a relatability there that isn't necessarily there with the Scrooge. That's why it's kind of important to have the story from the other, from the other perspective and why so much of it in the early goings, just watching his life unfold, because I agree. I happened to see this on television as a kid and I hadn't known about it or knew what it was. So I'm just watching this movie with this guy's life. And I'm like, why are we seeing all of this? And we see all of it. So we have that comparison of what it looks like when none of it's there anymore, you know? And when you recite the story, if I'm telling you the plot points, the plot points are that last 30 or, you know, 30 some minutes, right? 
but the movie runs for two and a half hours. Yeah, I, I had forgotten that. Like, I was just going to sit and watch it Sunday morning before football, what have you. I didn't. I forgot, and it was like two hours and ten minutes. Like, it's not a quick little eighty-minute movie or something that a lot of movies at that time period were. And and, and I don't know. Am, am I the only one that giggles about three quarters way through the film when you find that the cab driver was Ernie and the police officer was Bert? It's Bert and Ernie. <laughs> yeah, and you know oh, they yeah. actually. There, uh, people for the longest time said, well, that's where Bert and Ernie came from with Sesame Street, but they, they claimed that it was just a coincidence. But I did notice that as soon as they said that, I started <laughs> I thought about Bert and Ernie. And these days, even in the 80s, we were so used to those sorts of jokes that, yeah, and that's when I saw like Wonderful Life. I was like, oh, Bert and Ernie. Like, nope, this is too early. <laughs> Which is ironic now because like, I guarantee if I ask my students Bert and Ernie, half of them won't even know who that is. So oh, it's kind of gone that full cycle. That's a shame. It's called getting old. <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect note to end on. Inspirational talks. You know, what, what's it? Uh, Handy from Saturday Night Live. Jack I know Handy. I'm Jack Handy. <laughs> I don't know where you were going with that for a minute. I was yeah. like, Handy. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. You've made me feel old. I'm going to go take my Metam- Metamucil and go to bed now. Are you? A little extra fiber is needed in your life, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I mean, the other thing that I didn't realize until I kind of dug into this film was the guy that played Clarence, Henry Travers, he had been nominated for an actor in 1943 for Mrs. Miniver, and he was also in The Invisible Man. He'd been nominated for an Oscar? Yep. N- no, he was actually nominated to be an actor. That's how you get. That's how you become one. Oh, did I say? Oh, did I? Did I say? I, did I, yeah. What? 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 what yeah. Totalitarian society. You have to get it in the mail to tell you what you're gonna be. You get to be editor. <laughs> you will be a. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. <laughs> Tom Cruise is gonna hear it to save you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you don't realize how good an actor you know he was. And I honestly think that Lionel Barrymore plays, he's the gold standard of curmudgeons. I think that role, he was just phenomenal as, as the banker, the evil banker, you know. And if this were the cycle of now where there's a sequel for everything, you would have got the sequel where Potter basically just has to do the whole Scrooge thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I do, I do appreciate that element where they don't, you know, nothing happens to him. He just, his, his sentence is what would have happened to Scrooge. He just would have continued on living that life, that miserly life with the uh, oblivion at the end of it. And so there really isn't necessarily a worse fate, you know? Yeah. I mean, they, they should have had the, the aftermath of showing Potter's funeral. That should have been the. The post and Potter died fifteen, you know, ten years later, a bitter, broken old man. You know, and that's the end. I'll just turn turn it all <laughs> fade to black. Fade to black. <laughs> what if this podcast never happened? And then we're back. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. No, uh, actually, it's been a great time. I really, uh, I had a good time. Does anything else you guys want to close up with? I, th- I think we made a good case for. Uh, for for all these movies and for 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 a Christmas Carol, you know, are, you gonna, are, are those guys going to get a shout out or a whatever? Yeah, you know, you guys have whatever shout outs you want. Well, I just, I mean, I would just want to thank you for the invite. 
yeah, for fun. letting us come on and, and, you know, spend this couple hours with you and get an introduction to your audience. I mean, this is, you know, I think the podcast community, it works better whenever we give one another opportunities and, and things like that. And so we just, we really appreciate it. And, uh, we would love to have both of you come, come on real talk. Bill's been on real talk before, but Nathan, we'd love to have you come over. We'll pick some, you know, fun topic that we can get off the rails like we always do on. Um, I guess I'll just give our plugs one more time. And if the other guys have anything, you know, go for it. But uh, again, thank you to you. Thank you to your audience. We'd love to have you come and join us for an episode of Real Talk. What we've got coming up next is we recorded a 20 minute episode where we just talked about some things that are new. Obviously, not much being released in theaters now, a bunch of stuff being postponed, all that. But there are some new releases that's come out. So we quickly cover three new releases. We've got an interview uh, episode we're about to drop with uh, David Biddick, who is in Argo. He was in Sharknado. He's in soap operas and different things. And he, he was great. He so, was in both Argo and Sharknado. Yeah. yeah. That's what awesome. a resume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great resume. So we talked to him. And uh, he, he's, he told us some really cool stories, and we're going to drop that. And then we're going to finish the year up with uh, Home Alone. That's going to be our – we've got two Christmas episodes, Die Hard, and we're going to finish it up with Home Alone. So, again, Are you going to compare that to The Omen and how they're basically the same movie? <laughs> yeah, that, that was the whole theme. Yeah, straw dogs and Home Alone are essentially two sides of the same coin. <laughs> straw dogs, yes. Well, let's put that in this episode, please. That's the yes. best comment of the episode so far. But that's uh, that's it. That's all for me. And your Die Hard episode's up now, right? So you guys can go check out whether Die Hard is or is not a Christmas movie. Yeah, and me and Tommy Gunn have a uh, debate at the very beginning that got pretty heated. It ended in a fight, real life, but we didn't show that on the episode. <laughs> when, you, when you said Home Alone, I thought of the John Ritter film Problem Child. I thought you could do an overlap comparison of the two. Problem Child is the Tubi version of Home Alone. Problem Child. That's a great way. Problem Child seems like a Tubi movie. Like Bill, I knew, I knew you were stuck in the Tubi vortex. I I haven't seen the film since I don't know whatever it was ninety one or whatever. I feel like if Bill was like uh, an Academy member, he would be like just going on Tubi, like he'd be submitting like Tubi films for best. Be like, what the hell is Bill nominated again this year? Oh man, Tom Beaver nominated nineteen times. Haven't they seen those Filipino films? Come in, come on, you know they got to be on there. Right, I. Ice Spider Disaster to <laughs> the Scorpioning or something like well, that. Yeah. I would just say uh, real quick, thanks so guys, thanks so much for having us on. We've had a blast, or I've had a blast, and I love your show and the genres. You know, sci-fi. I'm a huge fan of that, so I love that you guys have a show dedicated to that. And I would just say, if anybody uh, thought that we were ridiculous tonight, we, you know, this is us calm and us tame, so we get even crazier on our show. You guys have bullet points tonight too. It's yeah. Well, you, and, you, know, you Wesley, you're yeah. pretty prepared. Gabe and I usually just freelance, and you kind of see where that goes. Uh, pure insanity. Uh, if you go anywhere, usually, uh, usually write down uh, nowhere good. So, if you like this type of ridiculousness, come on and join us, and uh, we've got plenty more of it. Yeah, like I said, we'll have that in the show notes, and then 
for Phantom Galaxy, we've got this. We we did an episode with uh, Peter Nielsen and Hugh Lloyd coming up. It was a lot of fun off offbeat Christmas movies, and we have a couple of people sent some some of theirs in as well, and we'll have that as included. And then we're going to finish up the year with uh, two episodes of uh, people actually reading Christmas ghost stories, classic Christmas ghost stories. So. All of that should be pretty cool. Again, thank you so much, Real Talk guys. Uh, Bill, is there anything you want to plug that isn't to be? I wanted to thank the guys for coming on. Their podcast, in all seriousness, is fantastic. It's irreverent. Yeah, it's, it's offbeat, but it's got some good analysis. So if anybody hasn't, the link will be provided for the show. Please go check them out. Uh, I really don't have anything on the go. I know that Nathan texted me earlier today and said, in the month of December, we will have six episodes available, which was probably our September through November catalog. So we've got an action-packed month at Phantom Galaxy here. Everybody out there, if you don't hear from us in the next while, have a very good new year. Stay safe. Stay germ-free. Stay off the roads if you've had a drink or any of the green. Just sit back with your family. Enjoy yourself. And get ready for lots of Tubi and Prime action. Man, if we don't end <laughs> that, I don't know what we end up. If you please put all that back into the episode and let's end on that. <laughs> Tubi, did you say some of the green? If you've had <laughs> some of the green, <laughs> well, in in, 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 in in most states, it's legal. I'm going to learn that Bill has cut a special deal like Phantom Galaxy <laughs> and Tubi on the other. Like, I won't know about it till one day, you know. Yeah, he's I don't making good, good money like, off this, and yeah, no one else sponsor you with action. We're going to see what Bill puts his, like, look at my new Tubi tattoo on his side of his arm. Well, you know what's funny is in the last while, I haven't watched it all that much, but every time I mention it, you guys jump. He's a Tubi guy. He's a Tubi guy. I watch it. <laughs> So we, I what you know, Bill, is we take a joke and we drive it into the ground. and then <laughs> So far, it, it comes out the other side of the earth. <laughs> you exploit it to its fullest uh, potential. <laughs> That's our forte. So, luck. <laughs> I, I, I watch it only for the children's cartoons. That's all. I, I got to say, whichever one of you posted the other day, the, the guy with Bill's face. That was me. Yeah, Gabe created that. He is... At first, people were like, dude, you're terrible at Photoshop. And we we're just like, I, I think it makes it even better. You're so bad at yeah. it. <laughs> the fact that it was just some kind of thumbnail of Bill tilted yeah. slightly <laughs> to the side on the back of a guy's head. <laughs> From a picture, by the way, that's like 10 years old. <laughs> I where you got that picture. It looked like Bill was licking a window or something. That's oh, amazing. I have all of Bill's old photos. So, so, yeah, somebody found some old Facebook photo or something. Like you were like, you were on a bit of the green in that picture. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh boy! I don't know where the podcast ends and the outtakes begin. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm recording all this, so you can put it in the yeah, blooper. Cool. I've got a lot of stuff on a lot of people because of <laughs> it recorded and then, then stuff happens. Oh, anyway, guys, thank you so much. This was a great uh, episode, and this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. All right, see you guys. Yeah. Take yeah, care, everyone. Ciao. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting, 
genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeat.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.